Welcome to the Lee Schools TV podcast. I'm Adam Wright. Joining us today is Susie Hassett, environmental education resource teacher for the School District of Lee County. Susie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. It's going to be a real treat for our audience today because I think you might have the coolest job in the district, debatable. Uh, but uh, you, first of all, I'm sorry for bringing you inside into a studio because I know you're always, you always want to be outside in the thick of things, in the elements, uh, learning about nature and being in nature. So, But you, were, you did your best to bring nature to our studio. As you can see, we've got some animals on the set today. So I highly recommend that if you're just listening to the audio version of the podcast right now, head on over to Facebook or YouTube and check out our video version because we're going to be doing some showing and telling with some animals and some plants that you brought with you as well. So it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but first, before we bring out uh, the first animal, Susie, just describe what the environmental education program in the school district is like, what it entails, what the aspects are, what you do. I've inherited such a great program. And so we are dedicated to making sure kids are connected to their environment. They're surrounded by it, but they're not always connected. They spend a lot of time indoors, so it's our job to make sure that they understand what surrounds them and appreciate it. So we try to get them outside into the environment. We teach them how to interact with it appropriately and how to learn from it. So we want them to have hands-on experiences and empower them to be citizen scientists and to contribute positively to the environment around them. We also want to make sure that teachers are prepared, so we do professional development for the teachers so that they can better utilize their own environment around their school to teach the kids. And they know about all the wonders that we have here in Southwest Florida and can bring it into their classroom. And then finally, we make sure that all these resources that we have in community partners are available to the teachers and students. So we help connect the teachers with their local resources like Florida Gulf Coast University and Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. So we have a plethora of opportunities out there. And you're, you're hardly ever in your office, you were telling me, right? You normally, you're always out at schools or outside. And what, so when you go out and visit a school, what are you doing? I have a number of roles. Uh, one of those is to take some of the environment into the classroom. I'll go and pick up students. I got my CDL license, so I can be Miss Frizzle for real. <laughs> one, one of my big uh, goals for life was to be able to pick up kids, put them on the school bus, and get them out there. Um, we get wet out at the beach, and they go on a mudflats trip, or we go up to our waist in the Six Mile Cypress Slough, or we go out into a Conservation 2020 Preserve, and the kids get to see how we can learn about this area and why it's so vital to them and their future. Uh, another thing that I might do at the school is help support their school garden program. So it's really important for kids to learn where their food comes from and how they can produce it themselves. Because if you eat locally and better yet from your own yard or porch, then you're going to have a healthier uh, lifestyle in general, not only physically, but also mentally and nutritionally. Yeah, I noticed it seems like a lot of schools have adopted their own gardens. Um, have you seen an increase over the past few years of more and more schools having their own gardens? Definitely. Uh, in the past 15 years, there's been more of a resurgence. Uh, this was something that happened, and, and people have said this several times, there was an awareness that came about in the late 60s and early 70s when the whole environmental movement came around the first time. Um, we seem to be having more of that. Again, people are realizing that there are ways to grow your own food 
and that it's very important for kids to understand where the food comes from. And there's research that shows that if they grow it themselves, they're willing to try it and try new things. And then they have a better diversity in their diet and they eat in a more healthy way. So if they learn to grow some of these vegetables, some of the kids, I know I've experienced them saying, oh, this is the first time I tasted lettuce. Oh, wow. And then they like it, and yeah. then they eat it more. And a lot of people say it tastes better, too, when you grow it yourself. It does. It does. And you know exactly what went into it, and you can do it without a lot of chemicals, and you can mm. make it healthy for you and for the environment. So you were talking about field trips, you know, the mud flats, going to the beach, Six Mile Cypress Preserve. Do you actually go out on all of those field trips with every school? Or well, Yes, I do. Yeah? That's a <laughs> yes, lot. Yes, I do. Um, I'm very fortunate that we've hired two helping teachers, one who can help uh, provide these field trips for elementary, middle, and high school. And he was well-trained um, at Big Cypress. He was an environmental studies major. So he helps deliver these field trips. We also have a recycling teacher now that recycling helping teacher will take kids out to our materials recovery facility. And in partnership with Lee County Solid Waste, she'll be helping kids understand what happens to their waste when it leaves their house. It doesn't go away. <laughs> It goes to a facility, and they can make good choices about it so that we don't waste so much. Mm -hmm. So she'll be taking kids out there so they can see that whole process and understand how it works and then recycle better in the future. Yeah, we were talking a couple days ago about some, maybe some common misconceptions about what you are supposed to and not supposed to recycle. You want to talk about that a little bit to remind people? Well, they might have noticed some of the advertising around town. There are billboards and buses that tell them, remember, five for the cart. So there are really only five things you can recycle, and it's mainly containers. So any kind of paper and cardboard are two of the main things. And then your plastic containers of any sort, as long as they've got the recycling sign and numbers one through seven on them, um, your glass and your metal. Those can all be recycled. And we're talking about glass containers and metal containers. You can't just throw your fork into the recycling. <laughs> it doesn't work. Once the kids see the machines, they understand better. Um, to make it profitable, because we want to recover these materials and be able to reuse them to make something new, if you keep that in mind, it helps you sort it a little bit better. So um, they recover these materials, they bail them, and they sell them to a manufacturing company to make them into a new product. So if you're talking about a nasty, dirty plate that you just ate off of, you can't really make that into some new paper. Yeah, so easily. you mentioned cardboard. Um, mm -hmm. And I've heard people say that you're not supposed to, you know, people think cardboard, oh, I can throw away a pizza box in the recycling. I've heard that you're not supposed to recycle pizza boxes. Is that true? You can if it's not covered with cheese. Or so if it's not real, real greasy, real cheesy, okay. you can do it. Okay. Yeah, because it, it will get boiled and made into pulp to be mm. remade. But if it's covered with a lot of food, it's just not great. Gotcha. And I know, um, I think the big one, because I went out to the recycling facility a few years ago, and they kind of went over the do's and don'ts, and they said the big one is plastic bags. Yes, no tanglers. Of, yeah, a lot of people put all their recycling in a plastic bag in their you know trash receptacle, and then they tie it up and bring it out to the recycling bin and throw the bag with all the recycling in there. But you're not supposed to do that because that bag can get tangled in all the machinery at the plant, right? That's exactly right. Thanks for bringing that up. That's one of the things that most often goes wrong. If you've tied it shut in that flexible plastic bag, you've just turned your recycling into trash. And you've just made the most expensive decision with your waste. Because instead of costing $50 or $80 to process that, process that material, you add $50 to $80. <laughs> 
because you have to do both. So what we ask them to do is make sure that they just dump it loose into their recycling bin or your recycling dumpster at your school. And that way it can be processed. Of course, if you're dumping it loose, you don't want to ever have shredded paper in there because that's too small and it's too small for the machinery as well. So that's the one don't. So I have better options for your shredded paper. You can use that for bedding for worms. Uh, do yeah. worm composting, and then you just thought of something better to do with your kitchen waste, okay. and you've got free fertilizer that's not going to contaminate our waterways at the same time. All right, some good tips. Uh, speaking of animals, you brought up worms. We've got a worm-like creature right in front of us. We've got a snake here. Let's let's bring out our first animal. You want to bring out the chase the corn snake? Chase the corn snake, yes, I will. Take your time. Okay, so he's in this... Uh, Agrarium, is that what you call them? Sure. Terrarium, terrarium. Yeah, a dry um, water tank, and she's bringing them out now. He's beautiful. He is beautiful. So little Chase the corn snake was donated to us. Um, I used to be in the classroom at Littleton Elementary, and I had a very supportive principal, Monica Broughton, who was very kind to allow me to bring some animals into the classroom to teach the children. And so... This little corn snake is harmless, and in fact, it's a very helpful snake because it likes to eat rodents. So it'll keep rodents away from your house. It's non-aggressive. A student had the snake and was tired of taking care of it. Yeah, you wanna bring him on the other side of the mic? Yeah, sure. there you go. So when we received it, it was in good shape, and we decided to make it an education animal. So this animal is an ambassador for its kind. And because it was already a pet, we want to encourage students, don't take things from the wild, um, but make sure that you are responsible with your pets. We don't want you to release your pets into the wild either, because that causes a lot of problems, mm -hmm. especially with some of the exotic animals that become invasive. Like so, monitor lizards, iguanas, things like that? Exactly. So we have some real issues with reptiles in Florida that were pets and Somebody got tired of it or it got too big to take care of and they decided to release it instead of turning it over to somebody else or to a zoo. So I encourage students, if you have a pet that you are done with, uh, contact a pet store, get online through social media, uh, go to animal control and rehouse that pet. Hmm. Don't ever release it to the wild. So this guy. How, how, how long is Chase there? Like three feet, two feet? Only about two feet. Two feet. Yeah, he can grow to about three, four feet, um, but that's about it. Yeah, and he's most this, snakes this grow beautiful, throughout their life. beautiful orange and red pattern. Um, how do you? How can you tell a snake is a male or female? Uh, some snakes have little vestigial uh, claws back by the end of their tail, and those would be the males. Some don't, and you can't tell unless mm. you check internally. Yeah, and so, so uh, Chase the corn snake. Uh, Herbivore or carnivore? That's a great question. Yeah, it's right on the side of the tank. Yes, I and we it. ask kids that. And so you can tell whether an animal's an herbivore or carnivore if you think about their teeth. Well, also you spoiled, you said earlier that they take care of mice. So they I do. guess you already did answer that question. They're carnivores and they are strict carnivores. They don't eat plants of any kind. So if you think about the teeth, Chase has all sharp teeth. Must be a carnivore. You have to have flat teeth if you're an herbivore because you have to chew those plants. Mm -hmm. Are any snakes strictly herbivores? Nope. Yeah, I didn't think so. Nope. Uh, okay. All right. Do you want? Can I hold him? You sure can. All right. Yeah. Let's bring him over here. 
And these are, you, you were telling me one thing that you want to remind students, especially younger ones, is not to be afraid of animals, especially ones that are obviously safe to be around, right? Exactly. So this is a native snake. It's supposed to be in your yard. It lives in, along with people all the time. It's not aggressive. So just because you see a colorful patterned snake doesn't mean you have to be afraid. I also encourage you not to approach it. Watch it from a distance. Enjoy mm -hmm. it. It's beautiful. Let it do its job. Uh, and also remember, if you kill the snake in your yard, you just made room for two more to come in. So mm. you're really not solving the problem. You Do you recommend people it. keep uh, snakes like this as pets? Um, if it was already a pet, especially in this case because it was a rescue, I think that's okay. It's an ambassador for its kind. It really has helped some students become more appreciative of its value and not as afraid of snakes. So in this case, it's definitely useful. Um, I think if you can enjoy animals in the wild instead of putting them into captivity, that's the best thing. Uh, we do have a lot of pets around, though. So if you are inclined to have a pet, make sure that you help solve the problem by looking on social media, looking at animal control, trying to rehouse a pet that somebody already had. And they are fun to hold. They are fun to hold. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. And kids are really inspired by animals. We have this need to be connected to nature, and it really benefits us. So they know that if you have a pet, it's beneficial to you in many ways. So even snakes are beneficial. All right, I'm going to put him back in the cage. Well, thanks for bringing him out. And you have a couple other animals we'll get to in, in a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to maybe dive a little bit more into, you've touched on it a little already, but just, you know, obviously one of the main things that you do is get kids outside into nature to learn about it. Well, you just said it, we almost have like a, an intrinsic inherent desire to be in and around nature but you know why is it so important to get kids out of the classroom into the elements and, and learn you know get their hands dirty and learn about what's out there there are a lot of intrinsic um, benefits from getting outside and they know that they've done studies and nature deficit is a real thing and when you get outside you're surrounded by so many different sensory inputs and you're able to move and you're able to benefit from all of the great chemicals in the air from the, just the plants that are around you. And people are drawn to the greens and the blues because it's nature and because it's just very calming. So there are lots of reasons to get kids outside. Most importantly, I think for our future is to help them understand that they are part of nature. They're not separate from it. And so every choice they make has an impact on it. And we want them to make positive choices. So if they get out there and they experience it and they interact with it, then they're more likely to choose those positive things, find ways that they can contribute to the world around them, and then that makes us all have a better community to live in. And so let's talk about you a little bit. Um, where did you grow up and how did you get involved in environmental education? I was really fortunate to grow up in Ohio uh, in a rural area. My parents were very supportive. My dad was a scientist, and he actually was an inventor with Procter & Gamble. And uh, so he taught me to be an inquiry scientist. And so he would ask me questions all the time and make me figure things out. So can you, what did he invent? Anything you can tell us about? Yeah. Dawn dishwashing liquid. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, um, that was a great start for me. My mom was a teacher and so she really taught me to identify a lot of things and she got a big kick out of teaching me the scientific names when I was a little toddler. So 
uh, between the two of them and they loved to garden. That's where I got my start. So I was able to play around in the streams and the ponds and find every aquatic thing possible when I was a kid. And they brought me to Florida when I was four. So that's the first time I saw Fort Myers Beach and my first dolphin. And I was watching Flipper and Jacques Cousteau. I was hooked. Yeah. So I knew that was going to be my future. So that's what I pursued wholeheartedly. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be a zookeeper at Kings Island in Ohio. It was a big outdoor uh, zoo. And then I was able to be a dolphin and sea lion trainer. And then I moved on to the Cincinnati Zoo where they convinced me it would be really good if I also got an education degree. So I have a Bachelor of Science in Zoology and a Master's in Marine and Aquatic Education. So I was in Ohio for all this and taking trips to Florida and saying, I got to get to Florida somehow. And I finally made it. So uh, some of my Role models were folks like Jacques Cousteau and Joan Embry and Jack Hanna, who would go out and be ambassadors for the Wild Kingdom and say, hey, you can make a difference. Let's be positive. And uh, I was fortunate to have lots of mentors when I moved here, lots of Golden Apple teachers. My uh, first year in Lee County, I was at Mariner High School with Golden Apple teacher John Miller. And he got me out on field trips. That's the first time I experienced a Mudflats field trip. I said, oh, I got to do this one day. So I've been really, really blessed to be able to do a lot of the things that I love and bring my knowledge and my enthusiasm to kids. So you worked with dolphins. What was that like? It was a dream come true. I always wanted to work with dolphins, so I figured out how to do it. So I was able to uh, get a scuba certification and do a dolphin training course through the School for Field Studies, and I got this job. So the dolphins are very, very intelligent. And it's hard for people to measure their intelligence because they live in such a different environment and communicate in a different way. But they understood a lot. And it was so rewarding to work with them and watch them think. Uh, we had an older dolphin that knew all the tricks in the book, so I could be certain that he could count fish because once he had his last fish from his bucket, he wasn't doing any more tricks because you didn't have any more rewards for him. And he didn't really care if you pet him. So he would go play, do his thing, play with his Frisbee, play with his basketball. The younger dolphin would play with you. She didn't care if you had fish or not. And she would be very vocal. And her name was Sadie. And I loved her very much. And so she would just get excited if she did a trick and you were happy with her. And she'd want to have a belly rub or or be pets. So they work completely off of positive reinforcement. So what great training for a teacher. Positive reinforcement works with kids too. And you train them with successive approximations. So if they start to get it right, you reward that. And then the next time they got to try a little harder and get a little bit more right. And then you reward that. So I was able to teach the younger one how to go through a hoop, which is really scary for dolphins. They don't want to go through an enclosed space because they have to breathe air and they're afraid they might get stuck and not be able to breathe. So she was so excited the first time she went through that hoop and she was like, meh, 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 meh. so it's kind of like kids. The first time they do something, they're excited. It's a celebration. You got to celebrate those successes. So you were like a dolphin trainer at a, at a zoo that you worked at or? It was yeah. a dolphin show at an amusement park, Kings, oh, Island, Kings Island in Ohio. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And we had a sea lion too. And same thing, positive reinforcement. So uh, the downside of that is you smell like fish all the time. It never washes off. So people don't understand that. It's a heavy job. You have to do a lot of physical lifting of all the food because you're feeding them pounds and pounds of fish. And you have to uh, make sure that they have good water quality and that they get all their vitamins. 
So you're doing total care and it's a total commitment, but mm. it was a lot of fun. How long did you do that? Uh, just for a year. Um, I went from there to the Cincinnati Zoo. Okay. So it was a short time, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Why? Um, I guess, why would you ever want to leave that job working with dolphins? That's true. Um, and my path just took yeah. me uh, into more and more education. So yeah. I realized the only way uh, people would conserve these animals and conserve their environment, which is really the path we need to be on, mm -hmm. is if they understood more. So I just got into more and more and more education, which was great. You work with a lot of, you've worked with a lot of animals throughout your career, I'm sure. What What's different about dolphins compared to other animals that you've worked with? I also got to work with elephants. Both are really smart. Both react to you in amazing ways. And you can tell that they're problem solving. So you can read a lot about different cases when they've problem solved and uh, communicated with each other and reacted to something in an intelligent way. So just knowing that there are these intelligent beings out there is mm. pretty inspiring. Um, one of the elephants that I worked with would check my pockets for apples and untie my shoes if I didn't bring enough. So yeah. it, it was kind of fun. And, and Sadie, like I said, would interact all the time. She would um, pursue my attention. So when you have an animal that's responding to you, when you have your dog or your cat that's yeah, coming you for really, your attention, you, you, you can really tell develop a bond. their emotions too. You do. So More it, so than other animals. I know obviously dogs, you can tell when dogs are happy or sad, but I'm sure with dolphins and elephants, you can as well. Right, right. And uh, I don't um, advocate animals in captivity except, you know, in, in the cases now, if you ever see a dolphin in captivity, they have very stringent regulations and they were born in captivity and they're there as an ambassador. Mm -hmm. And they do have a role as that. As a kid, if I had never seen dolphins in Ohio, I might not have been such an advocate of taking care of our water and our oceans and pursued that. So it is inspiring and it, it does have a place. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of times it's for conservation purposes as well, right? Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, there are some animals in captivity in our zoos now that have lost their place in the wild for a large extent. And so it is kind of a, a Noah's Ark, you know, that we have some of these species and and we're trying to take care of them. Bottlenose dolphins, luckily, are still in good shape. They are very intelligent. We have to be very careful with the way we interact with those. We have them locally. Um, I would say one of the things people should know is to treat them with respect that they deserve and make sure that you're not feeding them and teaching them bad habits. We had, in the past, some dolphins who learned to beg from people hmm. because people would feed them all the time. Yeah, that's kind of fun, but then they put themselves into jeopardy not everybody is going to treat them nicely mm -hmm. and they're going to be in trouble and mm -hmm. they just need to stay wild. And you mentioned uh, Jack Hanna as one of your role models. And I heard you say earlier that you actually got to work with Jack Hanna at one point. Just briefly, yep, as a volunteer. So when I was in grad school at Ohio State, he was in Columbus. And so I went out to a couple of his public appearances when he had a tiger one time and he used to carry around hissing cockroaches in his pocket. So it cracks me up that with the mosquito program in my office, we have those hissing cockroaches around that we also use. So it's kind of full circle for me. Nice. 
you just mentioned the mosquito program. Tell us about the mosquito program. It's a great partnership between our mosquito control district and the school district. So we have three teachers who are available to go out to your classes, kindergarten through high school, and they have different programs for different ages where they teach kids about the mosquitoes and the environment and how those kids can make a difference to the folks who live around them by being heroes and spilling the water. Mm. If you don't have standing water in your yard, you have less of a mosquito pro problem. Uh, they also help them to understand the science of controlling mosquitoes so that we can live more comfortably in Florida. So if you've ever been out in a swamp, you realize that the swamp is not so full of mosquitoes. Six Mile Cypress Slough, last Saturday, mm. we were wait, wading through the water, no mosquitoes, because there are skeeter eaters there. Mm. So part of mosquito control is to understand the environment and how the interactions happen and that if you have mosquito eaters, then you don't have mosquitoes and that you also want to be able to control some of the mosquitoes that are vectors for disease and why that's very important for us to keep us healthy. So they present all kinds of programs. Um, in high school, they do biology and chemistry programs and in kindergarten, they just teach them about the mosquito and what the characteristics of an insect are. So, Who are the biggest uh, skeeter eaters? Birds? or People always think about birds and bats, but you mm. got to think about the guys that are in the water, like dragonfly larvae. Mm, okay. They're pretty cool. And crayfish. And our gambusia are called mosquito fish for a reason. They eat up a lot of those larvae. So uh, a lot of our prevention also is focused on the larvae. If you stop them before they develop, then you're in a lot better shape. Okay. All right. Want to bring out another animal? Sure. Oh, you got Who's this right here? This is the little hermit crab. A hermit crab, okay. Yes, Sebastian. Is that a, you're bringing him out of a, he was under a uh, coconut Yeah, he shell? likes to hide in the coconut shell. And uh, what was his name again? Oh, it's Sebastian the crab, Sebastian, of course. Sebastian, okay. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about Sebastian? He's crawling around on your hand. You can fit him. He's about the size of your palm or so. Yep, he's got beautiful red and purple claws. And he is a land crab. This is not a marine crab. Marine crabs would need to be underwater so they could breathe. This little guy can hold a little bit of water in his gills so that he can crawl around on land. And we have these down in the Florida Keys and the dry tortugas. And he, of course, was a student's pet and was turned over to me. And I think it's really neat for kids to be able to look at him and count how many legs he has. How many and legs does he have? He has 10 because oh, he's okay. a crusty crustacean. Mm. So in some of our comparative anatomy, it's great for kids to count those legs and count those eyes and compare those to themselves and to figure out that some of the ways we classify animals are by these physical characteristics. So he is an arthropod, which means jointed legs. And he's got six of his legs outside the shell and then four back inside the shell with his tail curled around holding on. He is not he just attached kinda, he, to that shell. He just kind of jumped back in the shell when you moved your hand a little bit. Yep. So they, so that's what the shell's for. And, they get yeah. scared and they draw those legs in and they're protected. Now, how long does a hermit crab live? Uh, it depends. Now, they should live a couple of years in the wild or in captivity. So you can see some that have gotten very large. Um, when they're out in the wild, of course, they have a lot of animals who prey on them. And birds would be really happy to find him. Mm. So, look, you've been in captivity for mm. a little while because you're no, not. I'm gonna. I'm in. not gonna ask you to hold him. I think I'll let you. 
Oh, let me keep play him with over them. there. Yeah. Yeah. If he got really <laughs> scared, he might hold on with his claw. So you got to be aware of that. Okay. Yeah. Does he ever get uh, pinched? Very, very rarely. So yeah. typically I make sure he feels supported as with any animal. If you're going to hold an animal, you want to make sure it's comfortable. It's supported. It doesn't have to be afraid because the only time an animal is ever going to harm you is when it's defending itself and it's afraid. Yeah. So you got to remember that in the wild too. Don't go trying to pick up animals. That's the only time you're going to get hurt by them. Yeah. Just watch them. Where would you typically find one of these? The beach? Um, these guys down in the Keys are the dry tortugas. Okay. So if you ever visit the Keys or the dry tortugas, watch for these guys. They come out in the evening and crawl around and they're the little environmental janitors. They are cleaning up <laughs> the mess. They will clean up any scraps of food. And they go take care of things, make it all clean. Um, down in the Dry Tortugas, it's a really special trip if you go there. You'll see them come out at night, and they're cleaning up all the scraps that the tourists have left behind during the day. And they crack me up because they are hiding by the next day when the tourists come again. So speaking of, you mentioned the keys. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you are involved with or, or know people who are involved with a number of conservation efforts throughout the state of Florida, and you were telling me that there's uh, right now a big effort to save the coral reefs, in the Keys especially, right now? That's true. What's going on there? Uh, there's a stony coral tissue loss disease that's going down the Keys, and it's devastating. Uh, they're not sure what the vector is that is causing this disease yet. They don't know whether it's bacterial or fungal. So one of the efforts is to collect some coral for propagation so that they can replant these reefs. And you'll be able to see places where that's being done. Um, part of the research involves surveying the reefs. So I've been involved since 1991 with the Volunteer Scientific Research Dive Team here locally. And we help go out and survey the local reefs uh, to see what their condition is. And we've been able to work together with Lee County Marine Resources and Florida Gulf Coast University to do some different studies. This citizen science monitoring is really important, and it's something that folks can get involved in even as a child. Um, just two weeks ago, we had the Pine Island Sound scallop search, and the only person who found a scallop was a Cypress Lake Middle School student, and she very proudly brought it up. So hats off to you, Lily Boutel, for doing that. Um, so it's important for me to make sure that folks understand how they can become involved because it's an opportunity to learn more it's an opportunity to contribute to our knowledge base so that we can make better management decisions and be better stewards of the environment. And it's an opportunity to make an impact. It's positive. Some of the folks that you can work with, uh, there are a lot of citizen science opportunities that you can find online. It's an easy search. Moat Marine Lab, Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, Keep Lee County Beautiful, Florida Gulf Coast University, Charlotte Harbor National Estuary Program, all organizations that you can look at and find out what the next citizen science project is. Cool. And so what would happen if, you know, let's say the coral reef in the Keys disappeared, wasn't there in a few years? What would that mean for, for us and for obviously the wildlife there? That would be heartbreaking because it's so beautiful. Uh, one of the things folks don't understand is even if you don't live by the coast and if you don't visit the coral reef, some of the organisms there, the phytoplankton, produce a lot of oxygen for us. And that whole ecosystem is very vital and it's very interconnected. So if you lose your coral, that's the basis for the whole ecosystem and you then have a cascading effect of losing a lot of other life in the ocean, 
And if we come to that tipping point where we lose all these animals in the ocean, I'm not sure what our future will hold. Mm. So I don't want to be fearful yeah. and I, I don't want to talk about doom and gloom, but we sure. do need to be aware that there are some serious mm. choices that we need to make for our own health mm. and for our own future. And part of that involves being aware of how we're impacting the environment and our climate and to make some better choices while we have the opportunity to still change the tide a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you also were talking about uh, nurse shark tagging that's going on. What's going on with the nurse sharks? So I was very fortunate to be down in the Dry Tortugas this summer where some of these different agencies have come together. Um, there are researchers who tag sharks so that they can study where they go and what their habits are and better understand how to live with sharks. People are afraid of sharks, but they don't understand that these predators are really important to keep the ecosystem healthy. So they're trying to find out where do the sharks go, what do the sharks do. So they had a really cool uh, satellite tag that they could put on the shark, and it has an accelerometer, which helps them know what the shark's movements are, but it also has a video camera so they can see exactly what's up. Um, locally, you can get involved with some of the different fish tagging projects. Mount Marine Lab does it. Uh, Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation does some fish tagging. So any of these tagging efforts helps folks to understand the biology of the fish and their role in the ecosystem and how we need to protect them so that they can keep our ecosystem healthy. So there are ways that you can be involved with tagging research. And I keep looking over there because I... You brought a tortoise with you. I did bring a tortoise. We have gopher tortoises locally, but this is not a gopher tortoise. Okay. Gopher tortoises are protected because they are a keystone species. They take care of all the other critters in the neighborhood. They dig big burrows where you can hide if it's cold or if it's too hot or if it's raining too hard or if there's a fire. So they'll keep over 350 species safe in their burrows. This guy is a pet tortoise that somebody had, and they donated him to the program. It's a Russian red-footed tortoise. Yeah, yeah, let's get him out of here. Get him out of here. What's his name? His name is Digger. And Digger has these great digging claws, just like our gopher tortoises would have. So that's why I thought this was a great education animal. So this is one that was a pet, so he is legal to have in captivity. But he's the same body shape as our gopher tortoises locally. So he was the star of Gopher Tortoise Day this past spring. In April, on April 10th, we celebrate Gopher Tortoise Day because those gopher tortoises are really important. They can live in your backyard. They are strictly herbivores. Mm -hmm. So they just bite plants and eat them. And we, we had they a, dig uh, We had a, a couple of the, what are they called, red-eared sliders? Oh, yeah. So do you remember up? what it, the red-eared slider feet looked like? They didn't yeah. look like these boots, did mm -mm, they? No, they were more webbed. Yeah. Think, yeah, they're webbed feet, mm -hmm. they're paddles. So you can tell that this guy is not a swimmer. He's a digger. And so he's, he's, for a tortoise, he's fairly small, or am I just, do people think that tortoises are bigger than they typically are? We always think of the giant tortoises that live to be like 100, 150 years old oh, or so. Oh, yes, the Galapagos tortoises yeah. are giant. But this guy is what, you can hold him in one hand. Right. It's still a young tortoise. Okay. So a lot of our gopher tortoises are about the size of this yellow lid that I have him over and so they get fairly large, and that's why they can dig these burrows that are a shelter for a lot of other animals. 
So if you have a gopher tortoise in your yard, you are very lucky. He's just gonna go mow your grass for you and he's gonna give you something to look at. Make sure that you don't bother him or his little uh, burrow. And gopher tortoises will typically lay their eggs in the sandy apron in front of their burrow. So that's why we ask you not to step there. <laughs> we want there to be more gopher tortoises. Yeah. So these can be in people's backyards and- Yeah, gopher where tortoises would, you, would be. They're all over? Yeah, and this is a Rush, Russian red-footed tortoise. Okay. So again, this is not quite the same. Yeah. So where would the where would people find one of these? Oh, a Russian red-footed yeah. tortoise is strictly going to be at the pet store. Oh, okay. And how old do they get to be? All the tortoises have a very slow metabolism, and mm -hmm. they'll live a really long time. So if you choose a tortoise as a pet, you are looking at a lifetime buddy here. Because wow. they'll live like 50, 70, 80 years, maybe wow. even 100. They live a long, long time. Yeah, I have a, I have a cat that I got when I was 25 or so, and I was thinking, you know, if cat lives to 15, I'll be 40 when... Mm -hmm. Yeah, if and, you're choosing uh, to... But if you have a tortoise... <laughs> You have a you tortoise, could go out together maybe. yeah, or a parrot. Those yeah. are long, long-lived animals. So you are making a big commitment when you become a pet owner. Yeah, you got to think about that commitment. What do they eat? Uh, they will eat all kinds of leafy greens. So mm. he likes kale and he likes a little bit of fruit in his diet. He's probably looking at the apple over here because that's what he had. That's probably why they live so long too, just kale and fruit all the time. That's it. <laughs> it's a vegan diet, you know. <laughs> Okay, and you've got, um, why don't we go ahead and bring out the last animal that you brought. You brought a gecko with you, I think? It is. It's a yeah, leopard gecko. A leopard gecko. Okay, I'll give you a minute to grab him. Is that a male or female? It's a female. A this female. is a girl. Okay. Her name's Layla. She's a leopard She's gecko. She's feisty. She's squirming around She's in your wide hands awake. trying to get loose. She was sleeping earlier this morning. Now, I was going to ask why they call it a leopard gecko, but I don't think I, I think need an explanation. I think you can see from the yeah. spots, yep. Looks like a... Yeah, it's just, just a spotted, spotted gecko. Yep. Looks very much like a leopard pattern. So this is one of the common pets that folks have. And uh, again, if you get tired of it, rehouse it. Don't let it go because I'm afraid they've been finding some in the wild, just like our iguanas and several of the reptiles like tegus and now monitor lizards and unfortunately some of the big pythons mm -hmm. so burmese pythons are a huge problem because somebody lets them go uh lionfish are a big problem in our ocean they're an invasive species and they can trace it back genetically to about eight individuals that were released off of miami wow. and now they've invaded all of the caribbean so these leopard geckos are not they're not native, native. yeah nope so if somebody has a pet a non-native species pet that they don't want anymore and you know obviously you can't take them all so if they want to give up a non-native pet what what should people do because they can cause some real problems if they just let them out in the wild that's right and in florida we do have a huge problem with non-native invasive species that have come in and outcompeted our native wildlife um, for some of the pets like the uh, nile monitor lizards they're beautiful but apparently there were a couple that got too big and the owners didn't know what to do and let them go. So now there's a pet amnesty program. If you can't rehouse that pet yourself, there are days when you can turn it over to the wildlife folks who will take care of it. You don't have to release it. So that's something that not everybody knows about, but they should. Now the, the, the spots on this gecko, 
do they serve a, a purpose? Are, are they for camouflage? Yes, okay. exactly. So they would be great camouflage if they were hiding in the vegetation. So the spotted sunlight coming through the leaves would make a spotted pattern like that. So that's where this guy would want to live. He'd be in the vegetation, in the bushes, and the trees, hiding against the bark. How long do they live? Uh, these guys will live anywhere from five to ten years. And they may live even longer. We had a different kind of lizard that lived 19 years, quite wow. a long time. So it definitely depends on their care. And are they more active during the day or at night? These prefer to be active at night. Okay. So they are nocturnal, and that's the case with a lot of animals. That's why I'm surprised she's so wide awake. She's very happy. Mm. Maybe it's all the bright lights. She's nervous, doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I'll let you put her away so she can relax a little bit. Don't want to agitate her too much. Uh, a couple other programs that you uh, do, uh, Project Flow, you were telling me about. What's the Project Flow? It's a great opportunity for teachers to utilize their on-campus detention pond. So uh, we are fortunate to have Florida Gulf Coast University professors, Dr. Molly Nation and Dr. Serge Thomas, who are helping with this program and have designed this program. Uh, we have Dr. Ernesto Lasso de la Vega from Hyacinth Control District. So together they're all presenting some training for teachers and providing them with the materials so that they can go out and monitor the water quality of their school detention pond and learn about the ecology of it and replant it with some native plants so that it does its job better. We all have these detention ponds around not only for flood control, but also to clean the water before it goes out into the estuary and the ocean, and it helps us with our water quality problems. So if folks are better managing these ponds, we'll have better water quality for all of us because we're all connected by the water we share. Yeah. So it's a great opportunity for teachers to be equipped and to make this a great campus experience for their students to be little scientists on campus. And then that makes better citizens for us in the future. Cool, and something called the Green Bus. Green Bus is a program that will come out to campus as well. So we're trying to provide lots of experiences on campus. Um, and this one is all focused on recycling education. It's specifically for third grade, but it's an elementary program where kids can uh, interact in different stations as they rotate through and learn more about recycling and how to recycle properly and to have a good time thinking about what they can do differently, changing their habits at home if they are don't recycle now, or if they were not recycling the right things, they can do a little bit better job. So it's kind of fun for them to have this big old green bus come out to their campus and then get to do some fun things outside. All right. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, maybe some of the plants that you brought with you or? Yes. So we have a better uh garden education program mm. that we're starting this year okay. in conjunction with Kelly Wilson at UF IFAS and our nutrition program. So we're all partnering partnering together to provide some support for school gardens. So there are a lot of plants that folks can grow just on their porch. So I brought a couple of examples. Both of these are edible. One is an Everglades tomato. It's been just sitting outside by the school garden all summer long, and it's still producing tomatoes, which is mm. kind of fun in the summer. Yeah. Now my... My wife recently tried to grow some tomatoes. She bought some, and uh, her brother immediately told her, good luck, because they're difficult to grow here. Is that 
No, <laughs> I don't think so. So you have to get <laughs> right, the right I'll tell kind. Her that you, said that. you have to get the right kind, and you have to be aware. Um, there are some tomato diseases. You don't want it to be touching the ground because it mm. can get diseases more often. You want to check it to make sure it doesn't have caterpillars eating it because mm. there are some tomato hornworm caterpillars will chew it up. But uh, if you get some of the varieties that are good with the Florida climate, like this Everglades tomato, it's okay with all the moisture. Mm. Um, I know we've had some success just getting some of the leftover tomatoes that kids threw in the trash and squishing the seeds out and planting them. So those have grown at schools. So that works too. Um, there are some of the hybrid varieties of tomatoes that are more disease resistant that I might suggest. Mm. But there's some great opportunities you know, for kids to know that you can grow this in a pot this small and it can be on a porch or yeah. You know, as long as it gets a lot of light and a mm. windowsill and you can eat some fresh tomatoes on your salad. Yeah, obviously, and it needs to be watered regularly, which might be why my wife's tomatoes died. But Yeah, you can't forget. <laughs> you can't forget to water them. If they get too dry or if they get too wet, yeah, that's the bummer with plants. Um, this is a great recycling thing as well. These white containers okay. uh, come to the cafeterias, and they typically have a lot of these as waste every week because they held some yogurt so ah. we repurposed them for flower pots perfect so it's a great thing you know pretty much this whole thing was free except for the dirt nice it's a big tub of yogurt it's a big tub of yogurt <laughs> yep and if you're gonna uh have it outside it's good to put some drain holes in the bottom yeah. so it doesn't flood but yeah it's something that kids could do they could think about different kinds of containers they have at home you could use any kind of container you want as long as you have some good soil to put your plant in you're good to go What's that plant over there? That one is an edible leaf. So it is called a cranberry hibiscus plant. So it'll get a pretty little pink flower on it. And you can pick the leaves and eat them like salad. And it tastes like romaine lettuce with cranberries in it. Ooh. It's all tangy and tart. It's got a lot of vitamin C. So it's a good example of permaculture, which is a plant that's going to be a perennial that just keeps growing, growing, growing. And you can just harvest parts of it and eat parts of it. So that's another thing that we like to teach folks about is you can have some of your garden that's this permaculture so it continues to produce food for you year-round. Awesome. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap it up with the final five questions? Well, I just encourage folks to get outside and enjoy our beautiful environment. We live in paradise, so you should go out there and enjoy what we have. Look at those beautiful sunsets. Look at the beautiful water. The water's all improving this year. Uh, I've been studying the water since 1991, and we've seen some good days and bad days, and it's getting a lot better because we have everybody working together to make that happen. All right, Susie, what is your favorite book? Well, I have to say The Magic School Bus because I love to take chances, get messy, make mistakes, and take kids on field trips. And House for Hermit Crab because I like to read it with voices to little kids. It's a lot of fun. Okay. And what's your favorite movie or TV show? So Flipper because I love dolphins. Can't help that. And TV show would be The Magic School Bus. <laughs> Flipper, the... Both. Okay. Yeah, I used to watch I, the TV show when I was a kid, okay. and uh, yeah, so there, even the movies. There's the okay. one with uh, Elijah the Wood and Paul Hogan. Is that right? Yep. Okay, yeah. Yep. Still like it. Yeah, that movie. The old that, one was good. The one I don't think I've seen the old one, but I'm 
Uh, I know. I'm old. <laughs> uh, well, the, the one that came out, I think, in the 90s with Elijah Wood, I remember we were so excited to see it. Um, the, the music in the trailer was this song called Roll to Me by Delamitri. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but it was this great song, you know, um, looking. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going <laughs> to sing it. Uh, <laughs> but we love this song that they played in the trailer, and we were, me and my brother and sister were so excited to see the movie. And then that song isn't in the movie. Yeah. And so I've never trusted a movie trailer since then. We were very so disappointed. Sorry. But the movie was good. Uh, okay. What's your, what's your favorite song? Speaking of songs, uh, favorite song or musical artist? All right. So favorite song right now is Needy by Zach Brown. Okay. Because, you know, that's my job. Yeah. How lucky am I? Needy. And my favorite artist is John Denver. I like pretty okay. much anything he ever wrote. All right. And I'm assuming science was your favorite subject in school. <sighs> yes, it was. Specific science, environmental or... All kinds. Pretty much all of it, but the life sciences more. Mm-hmm. So I took that, that turn. My the, dad tried to convince me to be a chemist, but wasn't for it. Outside of science, what did you like? Um, I liked all the performing and fine arts. So I got to be a drum major when I was in high school. That was a blast. So I would say my other favorite musical artist would be the UCF marching band. I'm just saying. <laughs> you can't meet a marching band. And if you could have dinner with anyone, living or dead, who would it be and why? It'd be Jesus. And I have a lot of why questions. I, I was say, why, say, why, 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 why? Plus, he can turn water into wine, so hey. <laughs> I mean, he's only the most famous person who ever lived, so there you go. why wouldn't you want to? Easy choice. Talk to him. Uh, okay. Susie Hassett, environmental education resource teacher. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. We learned a lot, which I love. We're going to try to do more of these with uh, show and tells and some education for people to learn. So thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you next time.